you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John. We're again in John chapter 16. We'll pick up in the second part of verse 4 and read down through verse 15. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, we need you. Even now with this promise just read, that your spirit would be with us and in us. These great works of your spirit, Lord, we realize that apart from this power, We have no hope. So would you, Jesus, be glorified in our midst this morning by the work and power of your Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's night. Judas is making his deal selling out Jesus. The machine of false trials and hatred of the King of Glory is running. And this machine will soon climax in the arrest, trial, scourging, mocking, and crucifixion of our Lord It's all looming. And here, really, Jesus' last words, this is what he's bringing to his disciples in, in that context. This is what he's giving them. From last week, persecution is coming for the disciples of Christ. If you follow him in this world, there's going to be trouble. All of this, of course, though, is directed at Jesus himself. 
Jesus so closely identifies himself with his people that to persecute his people is to persecute him. Acts chapter 9. Jesus coming to Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now this is after the ascension of Christ. Who has Saul been persecuting? The church. Do you hear how closely Jesus aligns himself with his people? Was Jesus bodily there being persecuted by Saul? No, it was his people. You, Jesus says, are persecuting me. So what what is Jesus going to say to this bewildered group of disciples in the room? And through them, what is he going to say to us in the world? We've seen some incredible things already in the farewell discourse. A new commandment that I give to you, love one another even as I have loved you. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. He has promised, in my Father's house are many rooms. If I go, I go to prepare a place for you. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Another helper, the Spirit of truth is coming. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I am the true vine, Jesus says. I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in my love, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. All these things in this discourse Jesus has laid out for his people. The backdrop of persecution that is sure to come. It's coming for Jesus and it's sure to come for his followers. Jesus promises that the Spirit will come, that the Spirit will help. The question we have before us today is how? How is the Spirit going to help? What is the Spirit going to do? Our text today has some great detailed truth from Jesus about the Spirit. But all this information is couched in a surprise. Do you like surprises? I don't. I don't want a surprise birthday party. I don't want you to jump out and scare me. Listen, the world has enough surprises already for me. Some of you love stuff like that. My wife loves surprises. I don't. I don't like it. Jesus is going to say something very surprising that that should catch our attention. He's going to tell us that he's got to go away. He's got to leave. And that that would be an advantage for his people. Today we're going to look at the text and... In two parts, we're going to look at this surprising advantage. A surprise that we would not expect. We should not expect this uh, to be coming. It's it's not been made clear before. 
but it's an advantage nonetheless. And then second, we're going to look at the work of the Spirit, what the Spirit is doing in the world and in His people. So first, this surprising advantage. Look at, again at the second part of 4 and 5. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to Him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? Jesus is explaining to them why this hasn't been a huge part of His ministry in the past. Why hasn't he already explained all of this, right? Why right here in this, in this meal time, right before his arrest, why is he dropping all this now? He's not been explaining up till now much of the function of the Holy Spirit, but now things are urgent. And here's the reason for that. Jesus has been the shield for them. He's been defending his disciples from the world. His final act in this life is an act of defense for his people. They will come to arrest him, and instead of taking everyone, he says, No, it's me. I'm the one you're after. Leave them alone. Let them go. Take me. He goes willingly, and so he saves the rest of them for the time being. He knows that the world will come for them and even kill them, but up till now, he's protecting them. He's been shielding them. What do we make of verse 5? He says that it's time to go to the cross, and he's already told us where he's going, but they say, he says, you're not asking me where are you going. If you're reading closely and slowly you may miss it but they have asked that question they've asked him that a couple of times where are you going where are you going and here's what I think is going on when you encounter something like this in the Bible the simplest answer is best and the simplest answer and several people accord with this the reality is Jesus has answered that question and they didn't like the answer And right now, like as things get closer and closer to the end, they've stopped asking the question because they didn't like the answer. He's saying this, you're not asking me right now. You're done asking that question. And it's a vital question. It's vital to the point of what he has to say. Where he's going has everything to do with the Holy Spirit that is coming. And yet they've... The, the, the disciples who were so persistent in wanting to know where he was before, he's already answered them. Now they've shut up about it. They're not asking anymore. So he goes on in 6 through 7 with this surprising claim But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. That's why they're not asking anymore. The answer to this question has made them sad. He said, I'm leaving. I'm going away. Nevertheless, verse 7 is key. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What is the advantage? We want Jesus. Wouldn't it be better for Jesus to be here on earth? No, he says, 
the better option for these disciples in this room and the better option for the disciples in this room is that he go away and the Spirit of God would come in power. Here are some advantages, surprising advantages. The ministry of Christ, what he accomplishes in the gospel is to have a far, far reaching impact in the entire world. The famous Isaac Watts hymn, we love to sing at Christmas time. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Can you say the rest of it? As far as the curse is found, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. See, the thing is this, Jesus is God, but here's something we struggle with, I think, sometimes, especially after the resurrection. He, he is still embodied. He is a person. He exists in space and time. He eats breakfast on the beach with his followers. He's a person. He sends the Spirit of God into the world. And by doing that, the ministry of Christ is exponentially spread as far as the curse is found. The Spirit will not just reside beside us, not just sitting in a room with us. The Spirit will reside inside of us. That is a tremendous advantage. Jesus is saying it is better for us today that he has gone away and that the Spirit of God would be here. It's better for him to be ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in glory than for him to be somewhere located on the globe today preaching a sermon that we could all fly to and sit under his preaching directly. This is the better option. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around. And he knew talking to the disciples, it would be hard for them to wrap their minds around. Way harder for them than us, by the way, because they had known him intimately for three years. Plus, walked and talked with him every day. I think for some of us, to some extent, we, we have a hard time believing Jesus on this point. Somehow we think that if we could just live back then, if we could have just heard Jesus speak, and then we would really be super Christians. Our Christian lives would be so much richer. Then, if we were back then, then we would really get it. If only we could have been with Jesus in Galilee, seeing all the wonderful things that he did. Or maybe if he had baptized us personally in the Jordan River, then we would be a super Christian. If only we could have 
been up there with Jesus and heard the Sermon on the Mount with our own ears, then, then it would really matter to us and then it would really shape our lives. No. To all, Jesus is looking at all of this and saying to us, no, that is not the case. It is to your advantage that I go away. D.A. Carson says this, before the triumphant inbreaking of God's sovereign reign, before the inauguration of the new covenant, millions ignored the claims of the true God. Pentecost, that is the coming of the Spirit, transformed that limitation and millions have been brought to happy submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and to growing obedience by the power of the Spirit whom He gave. It is to your advantage that I go away. Millions have come the world over. They have bowed the knee to Jesus because Jesus went away and the Spirit was sent. What did this really mean for the disciples? Consider them. They love Jesus dearly. They have been with Him. They said, we, we saw Him with our eyes. We've touched him with our hands. And to even them, he's saying, this is the better option for you. What do the disciples look like after Pentecost? So when Jesus is crucified, we'll see that they're horribly afraid. They're terrified. Their Lord, their leader, the one that they had grown in confidence that this is actually God in flesh. They had watched him die outside the city, on the place of the skull on a cross. They're scared to death. They scatter. Then they gather together. But when they gather together, they lock themselves in a room and they're wringing their hands, wondering what they're going to do. But what happens when Jesus ascends into glory? The Holy Spirit comes. And then what happens after that? Do we stop reading in John? No, have you ever read the book of Acts? It's like a bomb going off. A gospel bomb going off. These same scared disciples will speak truth in halls of power. They will minister the gospel to the lowly. They will suffer incredible hardships, yet they will plant churches all over the known world. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's better for them that he goes away, that the spirit might come. It doesn't mean that they can't occupy the same space at the same time. It means that God's plan is that Jesus must go and that the Spirit must come to give room for the Holy Spirit to work this explosive power that He still is working to this day. If you're like me, you might be sitting here thinking, 
I don't experience any explosive power of the Spirit. I would much rather be listening to Jesus preaching this than Quinn. I'm with you on that. 100%. I would too. The point is, you don't experience this advantage that Jesus is talking about. First, if you're here as a believer in Christ, it is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He has shown you the reality that you are a sinner. And that you owe a debt of your life before a holy God. And that there's nothing at all that you can do about it. That the only way to be saved is to trust, to believe in Christ and Him alone for salvation. If you see that, it is because of the power of the Holy Spirit that has been at work in you. Second scripture says that in the life of believers that we can actually quench the Holy Spirit by our thoughts and actions. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Listen, what what does this look like? The Spirit living and abiding in our world and in us. It looks like this power is at work but it's also a power that we can quench. The text is saying this, don't don't be shocked. Don't be surprised if you feel dried out. If your life is no longer seeking Christ. If you're continuing to give yourself over again and again to evil, don't Don't be shocked that you feel dried out. You're quenching the spirit. Ephesians 4 even says it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit of God who seals us. Listen, if you're sitting here thinking this morning, that's me. I don't feel the power of God at work in me. I don't feel empowered by the Spirit. It's, it's, it's possible that you've quenched the Spirit. It's possible that you've grieved the Spirit. But listen, here's the good news. That same Spirit allows us to repent. That same Spirit of God calls us again and again and again to repent. Empowering us to do that. Lord, I'm, I'm wrong. Lord, I'm, I'm being defiant. Help me. The Spirit points us again and again and again to the means of grace that He has given us. His Word. The sacrament, the table. Prayer. These are means used by the Spirit of God to encourage us, to shape us, to lift us up. Do we take Him at His word today that we're better off? That Jesus is bodily gone? Seated at the right hand of the Father? One application is simply this. Trust Him. It might be a surprise, and you might not like surprises like me, 
trust him. He knows what he's doing. It is for our advantage that Jesus has bodily gone away. So Jesus says this is a huge advantage, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to spell out clearly the ministry of the helper who is being sent. So we'll take a look at the Spirit's work. First, his work in the world. What is the Spirit of God doing in the world? Secondly, what is he doing in us? What is he doing in his disciples? What is he doing in his people? The first category, the first horizon of the Spirit's work in the world. Look at 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The the general mode of operation of the spirit in the world is to bring conviction. Conviction. Literally, this means to expose, to reprove, to reveal, to, to show to be guilty. This word is used many times across the New Testament. And literally every time it's used, it's, it's used in context of this exposing of sin. That's the, the major role of the Holy Spirit is, is this, showing people their sin. And if we think about it, it makes sense. The, the world hated Jesus because he did the same thing. This operation of the Spirit that Jesus is promising is going to go on in the world is simply an extension of the ministry of Jesus. They hated Him because He called them out on their sin. How does this look? Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 is a pretty good example of the Spirit convicting of sin. Peter says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you remember that? That's a pretty harsh sermon. What if I stood up here and said, you killed Jesus? You might squirm a little bit. I would. But listen to the response. In verse 37 of Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This would not happen apart from that convicting work. Peter had just said, You're a killer. You're a killer. You killed Jesus. The hands of sinful, lawless men. You did it. And you know what they say? You're right. We did. What do we do now? What's he say? Repent. Believe the gospel. 
The ministry of conviction might sound like a bad thing. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm curious how many of you love the exercise of feeling conviction. And that just feels so great to know that I'm wrong. Oh, it just gives me warm fuzzies to, to, to feel that this attitude, action, habit, addiction is so great. No, it's terrible. It's so bad that God has to be the one to do it. He's the one who brings conviction. Before we came to know Christ, every single one of us here needed to be convicted of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Jesus spells these three out. First, conviction of sin. The first way that Jesus convicts is because of sin, because they do not believe. Each one has a because clause to it. First, sin, because they do not believe the most heinous sin in all of Scripture is unbelief. Especially in John. John is just calling us again and again, making it so clear and plain what he wants us to do. He wants us to believe. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. And he says that there's this heinous sin of unbelief and it's a rejection of Christ. To believe in Jesus is to hear his statements about sin and guilt and turn to the only one who has the power to do anything about it. To turn to Christ himself. This ministry of the Holy Spirit is so needed because the world largely believes that they're good. I don't know if you've ever tried to sit down with an unbelieving family member or friend and had like a real deep, great conversation about their sin. It doesn't tend to go well. It doesn't tend to go well. More than likely because they they will argue that it's not sin. It's just fine. It's just the way I live my life. Leave me alone. Get out of my business. I am choosing to do X, Y, and Z. And it's, it's morally neutral. The world today hates to hear things like there's... None, no, no one righteous, no not one, hates it, hates it. Jesus is pointing to the reality that unbelief in him is rooted in sin. I love this quote by F.B. Meyer. He says this, here's the supreme manifestation of moral beauty. But man has not eyes for it. Here is the highest Revelation of God's desire for man to be reconciled with him, but man either despises or spurns his overtures. Here is God in Christ beseeching him to be reconciled, but unbelieving man absolutely refuses to be at peace. No trace of tears in his voice, no shame on his face, no response to God's love in his heart, end quote. This is the world apart from the convicting power of the Spirit. Second, righteousness. Concerning righteousness, again, because, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. It's kind of a bewildering statement. Like I get, okay, conviction about righteousness. 
But what about this going to the Father? We'll talk about that in a second. I think there are two ways that we can understand this conviction concerning righteousness. First, by the Spirit we're made to see that this reality that our own righteousness is filthy rags. The very best thing that we can produce still falls woefully short. Jesus was doing this all the time in his ministry. He was constantly confronting man-made righteousness. Which constantly, 100% of the time, falls woefully short. One commentator said, uh, human righteousness is like monopoly money. It's very useful when you're playing the game, but it is not real currency. It does not work in God's domain. I think that's a great illustration of our own self-righteousness. This is one of the things that the Spirit is coming in convicting of. Your righteousness is not enough. You being a good person is not enough. Time and time again, Jesus is is challenging the Jews and their external religion. On the outside, you look good. Oh man, your life is so great. You got it going on. And Jesus comes into all of that and says, you're whitewashed tombs. Inside, you smell like death. Second, there's another conviction of righteousness, I think, that is being revealed by the Holy Spirit that is the full and complete true righteousness of Christ himself. So the Spirit is convicting us that our righteousness is not enough, and at the same time, it's pointing us to the righteousness of Christ. So here we get to this question about the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He says, he's convicting of righteousness because I'm going away. I'm going to the Father and you won't see me anymore. So how does the resurrection and ascension of Christ utterly crush the false righteousness and prove Christ's true righteousness? Because of this, his life is the only life ever to have been vindicated by God as perfectly righteous. Death could not hold Jesus Christ because he did not deserve death. His resurrection and ascension to the Father is precisely because he was perfectly righteous. He had never done one thing to deserve death. He perfectly obeyed the Father. And his life now stands in marked contrast to every other life that has ever been. Because every single one of us deserve wrath and judgment. Our lives are not stamped fully righteous. We have broken the law. That is why it is only in him and his righteousness that we have any standing before the Father. The stamp, God's seal of approval on the Son is the resurrection and ascension. That is how He is convicting the world of righteousness. He's the only one. How does this conviction work? I think we see it some in the, in the life of Nicodemus, who at first when he meets Jesus is... I mean, he's, he's a squared away guy. He's a Pharisee. He's got it going on. He's got his stuff together. He's a very religious dude. 
He's got some questions for this guy. Slowly over time, when we meet Nicodemus, there are changes. He, he defends the Lord, and at the end, he says, I will bury him. I will take his body. Publicly, I'll take him. It's really interesting. His, his view of righteousness, of his own self-righteousness had changed. Paul talks about it openly in his own life. Listen to Philippians 3. It's a very familiar text. Though I myself, Paul writes, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen to this. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. He says in, ter in human terms, Paul says, I've done everything right. And that righteousness still falls short. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And this is all of us. Listen, have we been convicted by the spirit of righteousness, a righteousness, a perfect righteousness, which is only achieved by Christ. But then we get the benefit of that. Isn't that amazing? This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit and it's stamped with the seal of the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. Third, judgment concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged just as Jesus has spoken of judgment, judging the ruler of this world and casting him out. He's already told us what he's going to do with the enemy. He's going to be thrown out. The Spirit will continue the ministry of judgment and the proof of this ministry is the overthrow of Satan himself. Spirit is going to reveal just how wrong those are who denounce Jesus. The prince of this world blinds, deceives, and lies about the identity of Christ. But the Spirit is going to come in bringing conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. Judgment that is already present in their day and judgment that continues through our day. He's still doing this work of judgment. And the because statement there, he's, judgment is ultimate. This judgment is ultimate. He is casting out Satan, judging him. These three form the backbone of the Spirit's work in the world. But what does the Spirit do in the people of God? What about the disciples in the room that are listening to Jesus? And what about us in this room? Listen to 12 through 15. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare to you all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare to you the first thing that should strike us about 
hearing what Jesus is saying, this is not some particular action of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Trinity. He's telling them this, listen guys, listen. The Spirit is going to assure you that your life in me, in Christ, is enmeshed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Utterly astounding. Utterly astounding. Being in Christ means you are enmeshed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on telling his disciples, he's got way too much to say, and they can't bear it. Literally, it's too heavy. It's too heavy. But the answer to this information that he wants to convey to them that's too heavy is this. The Spirit is coming. Your school is not done. You haven't graduated yet, guys. He promises that the Spirit will come. He promises that the Spirit will lead them into all truth. What in the world is that about? So suddenly, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, they know everything? No, it's not all facts. It's all truth. And in the context of what we're reading right now, what is the truth? What is it? Just a couple of weeks ago, he, he made it real clear what he talks about when he talks about the truth. What does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. What is he saying when he's saying, I will lead you into all truth? He's saying, you're going to know me. You're going to know me. You're not going to get everything now, guys. You're not graduated. But when the Spirit comes, you're going to get me. And that's the, the drumbeat of what the Spirit does in the people of God for the rest of what he says is this. That the Spirit glorifies Christ. The ministry of the Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus. He's not saying that he's going to lead into many different revelations. He's not going to give tons of different visions. He's going to do a lot of things. But what the main role of the Holy Spirit in the life of disciples and in the church is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to lead you into all truth. I'm going to point you to to Jesus again and again and again. Massive piece of redemptive history is unfolding right here in the disciples. They can't take it all in. And none of us would have been able to either. The Holy Spirit is coming to complete their education. In verse 14, he very clearly says, the ministry of the Holy Spirit among the people of God, he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus Christ wherever Jesus is made much of, the Spirit of God is at work. That's where Jesus is being glorified and we're being invited into that reality, even today. I'll just end with a a great illustration out of J.I. Packer's 
little book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit. It's one of the first books on the Holy Spirit I read. I highly encourage you to read it. It's great. Um, But he gives this illustration of the Spirit being at work. He says this, it's like a a floodlight. The ministry of the Spirit is, is like a big floodlight. And it's shining up on this huge cathedral to reveal the, the beauty and the majesty of the cathedral at night so that you can see it. Now, is, the, is, the, is what we're to do with this floodlight that's doing this job, are we to go and stare directly into the floodlight? Is that the job of the light? No. That is not what the light is there to do. Because the light is on and blazing, it is lighting up the beauty and the the architecture of this grand cathedral. That's where our eyes are to go. That is exactly what Jesus is saying the Spirit is going to do. Do you want to see the work of the Holy Spirit? Look at Christ. Do you want to see the glory of the power of the Holy Spirit at work? Consider today the claims of the gospel. That Jesus is God himself in flesh. That he came to this world to live in our place. To die for us. Taking our place. And death did not hold him again. His life was stamped as righteous by God. And he is raised from the dead and ascended to the Father. Listen, if you get that today, you get it because the Spirit of God is this blazing light revealing the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even with this shroud of darkness, even with the promise of persecution, even with you, Jesus, going to the cross in this moment, you promise this blazing light. Would that continue to blaze in our hearts today, encouraging us? Lord, may we see the beauty of you, Christ, our King. Shape us by these things. Mold us more and more into your image, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.